Welcome to Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. This is part two of the interview with John Rubenstein. For part one, please visit iTunes or www.halfhourtocurtain.com. Well, let's jump way ahead for the moment to uh, 1980 and Children of a Lesser God, uh, the Mark Medoff play, which was directed by Gordon Davidson. You started out here at the Mark Taper Forum, which is where I saw it. And and uh, you and your co-star Phyllis Freelich, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Freelich. Yeah, she always used to say Freelich. I mean, she didn't ever say it, but everybody else. Awesome. Uh, Freelich, yes. Freilich. Um, um, you both won Tonys. It was a huge success, uh, and of course, that play is about. It features a relationship between the two of you, and she is deaf, so you had to speak and use sign language through most of the play. Did yeah. you learn sign language for specifically for that role? Yes. Yeah. The audition for that role down at the taper, because I knew Gordon, I had worked down at the taper already a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And um, the audition was learning sign language in front of them. They, they had like two speeches about that thick, you know. Mm-hmm. And you, you had to, the, the sign language teacher, a wonderful guy, was sitting there, and the playwright and the director. And he had to teach me the words and they had to watch me learn the signs and then say that speech while signing it. Just on the spot. On the spot. And I did it relatively easily. And I credit mostly that I'd played the piano all my life. And my fingers were very limber. (laughs) Because over the years, I saw a lot of actors uh, in that play and, you know, in, in later revivals of it, learn sign language who weren't pianists or, or something with their hands and have a very tough time because not, you not as not of dexterity. Yeah. 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 So and I had was, a little edge there. Yeah. And that, I, I presume that was a wonderful experience doing that play. Doing that play. Yes. That was very, very hard. That was sort of like climbing Mount Everest. So it was, very rewarding and and you felt like you'd done something but it was very cold and you couldn't breathe (laughs) (laughs) now after that which was a huge hit uh you you went into a play that was not as big a hit uh fools uh written by of course neil simon and directed by by mike nichols who were of course probably two of the smarter people in in theater what was that a happy or a frustrating experience well, you know, anytime you're in a flop, it's a frustrating experience. There's no doubt about that. Um, Neil Simon had asked me to play the lead in his musical, um, their play in our song, a few years before that. And I had new agents, and to, I won't tell you this long story because it's just too awful, but they agented me out of doing that. Oh, oh wow. I was going to do it no matter what, I would have done it for nothing. But somehow the word was given out that I needed God knows what, a chariot and four white horses to bring me to the theater every night. I needed to be carried on stage by naked women. I mean, my agent made the sort of demands. I had only done one show, which was Pippin, and I hadn't won anything for it, the Theater World Award. But I mean, you know, Ben Vereen got the Tony or Pippin. So I wasn't a, a name that anybody knew. And, but they made me sound like the most conceited jackass in the wow. Western world. And Neil Simon said, fuck this guy. Oh, pardon my French. And Neil Simon said, not hiring him. 
let's hire the next guy who was uh, Robert Klein. So I lost that opportunity and was devastated. But then I got Children of a Lesser God, which I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So I consoled myself. But then when Neil Simon came back to me and said, look, I've written a play and you're perfect for it. Do it. And I just won the Tony Award. So now, again, my stocks were up. In, <laughs> in a career, your stocks sometimes are up and mostly are not. Um, so I did Fools, which was called The Curse of Kulienchikov at that moment, um, with great pleasure. And I loved it. And I played with some of the best clowns on Broadway, Harold Gould, Mary Louise Wilson. Um, Richard Scholl. Richard Scholl, Jerry Hyken, uh, great people. And Pamela Reed played and Pamela opposite, Reed yeah. opposite me. Yeah. Hmm. It, was, it, it was a great experience. I mean, Hal and I sometimes, we had to stand there on the stage and just look at each other, waiting for the screaming laughter and applause to die down. It was hilarious. It didn't, the plot, the script plot didn't quite hold together. It was a little too silly. We worked very hard on it. Neil really worked hard on it. And then it was completely devastated by the newspapers. Mm -hmm. They were waiting because Neil Simon was the guy, the hit machine. Every single play he wrote was a hit, 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 hit. Then they were made into movies and the da, 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 da. Neil Simon was, you know, the bard of America. But people resented it. The hoi polloi. I mean, he, he appealed to the hoi polloi and the sort of, top echelon, you know, uh, Edward Albee fans didn't like it. So when he wrote a play that was so silly that they could pounce on it, mm -hmm. they did. I want to step aside and, and talk about a show that you uh, did not create the role for, but went into Hurley Burley, oh. David Rabe play um, around 1985, and you replaced William Hurt. Now, what was your experience of going into a show that had already been playing for a number of months and was essentially a hit play. Uh, and I presume most of the rest of the cast was still in it, so you were the newcomer. No, th there was a quite big turnover right then. Ah. Mm. Um, yeah, new with me were Ron Silver, who took oh. over for Chris Walken. Oh, Christopher Walken, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, Ron Silver took over for Chris Walken. Um, Harris Laskawi took over for, for um, Harvey Keitel, but his understudy, who went on many times, was uh, Kevin Spacey. Huh? Oh, wow. Uh, and um, Christine Baranski went in the, uh, the uh, Sigourney Weaver part, but Candace Bergen had been playing it. Oh. That was what Jerry Stiller was in that, too, wasn't he? Jerry Stiller remained. He was yeah, he in, in. He with me. And, uh, and, and that, Cynthia Nixon, yes. Cynthia Nixon, no, I, I did it with another actress. Um, Cynthia, just before that, had been doing two Broadway plays. She'd been commuting from the real thing to Hurley Burley, because in Hurley Burley, she was in the first and last scenes of a three and a half hour play. Right. And in the real thing, she was in the middle couple of three scenes. So she <laughs> did both plays. Wow. Amazing, yeah. And did you enjoyed Hurley Burley? I liked the play very much. It. I absolutely loved it. It was, but it was a, a, a sad event for me because I had done a pilot and six episodes of a TV series out here at Warner Brothers called Crazy Like a Fox with Jack Warden. Mm -hmm. We had shot six episodes 
end of story. And then you wonder if, you know, what's going to happen. So Mike Nichols said, do this play, take over for Bill Hurt. And I said, sure. The rehearsal process was wonderful because Mike did it. Mm. Normally when you take over in a play, the stage managers just job you in and they tell you where to stand. But, you know, Mike took the time. And also because there were so many of us coming in. So sure. he, he directed the play again with us. Mm -hmm. And that was wonderful. I loved working with him. You know, this was now the third time I'd worked with him. And uh, you had seen him growing up on stage, right? I'd seen him growing so up. That must have been pretty cool. Oh, yeah. He, I, I had auditioned to, uh, to play the lead in The Graduate. You notice I didn't get that part. <laughs> <laughs> Let me check IMDb. No, yeah. you're right. You didn't get that. I didn't, yes. And then, but several years later, like almost 10, what was it, about seven or eight years later, I wander into an audition for another TV series at, in Aaron Spelling's office. There's Aaron Spelling. There's uh, Mark Rydell, who is directing the pilot. Mm -hmm. And there is Mike Nichols, whom, who, you know, as far as I was concerned, I was meeting for the first time, even though I'd auditioned for him. And I had three scenes ready. It was for a regular on the series. Um, and I sat down and he said, John, you don't want to read, do you? And that was a very bizarre question. Wow. And I said, well, I, I'm ready. Of course, I'm happy to read. He said, yeah, but you don't really want to, do you? And I said, well, no. <laughs> he said, well, then do the part. It's yours. Wow. <laughs> and he later told me he remembered me from my audition. Wonderful. He didn't say at that audition, oh, that was wonderful. You're in the running. Nothing. I auditioned. Thank you. I left. End of story. Dustin Hoffman. Eight years That's later, he gives me a role based on that audition that he remembered. Again, this is one of my best stories in my audition class. Yeah, it's, it's a great when story. You, you blew the audition. Don't. Hmm. Don't worry about it. It can always come back and hit you. Mm -hmm. So, so that same year in, in 85, I believe, the La Jolla... Uh... Oh, wait a minute. Let me finish my oh, no, other... Oh, go story. ahead. Oh, right. Yeah. So I do my opening night of Hurley Burley. Wonderful play. Great role. David Ray was a friend because he was married to Jill Claiborne. Um, and that night I get from my agents in L.A., they want seven more episodes of Crazy Like a Fox. You have to come back out to L.A. I said, oh my God, I just opened on Broadway in this fantastic play. So I went to Mike and I said, eh, what do I do? He said, well, do the weekends here and shoot there. So for three months, wow. I shot a series in which I was in almost every scene with Jack Warden out here in, at Warner Brothers. And on Friday night, they would let me out. It was always the late night shooting. Uh, and they would let me out at nine so I could zip to the airport. This was before security days. Mm. I could just park my car and run to my gate and walk into the plane. Wow. So I took the red eye. I would get to New York at six in the morning. I would go to Carnegie Hall and do radio shows because I had a radio show out of Carnegie Hall at that moment. And I would record two or three radio shows. And then I'd go to the uh, Ethel Barrymore Theater and, and do Hurley Burley matinee and evening. Um, the best thing about that was I was exhausted, but Hurley Burley, I began the play sitting in a big armchair 
big poofy chair, hung over and coked out and completely blotto. And, and uh, the Harris Laskowy, Kevin Spacey character would come on and had all the lines over the first few pages and walked to a kitchen that was on the set and made real coffee fresh, real coffee, <laughs> brought me a cup of coffee. And I sat there sort of comatose, saying a line here and there, but nothing much. So even though I was exhausted, <laughs> I got to walk up to the Broadway stage and be exactly who I was. <laughs> I have some coffee brought to me before I revved up to do the rest of the play. But I did that. And then I would do the Sunday matinee. And after the Sunday matinee, I would tear out to, to Kennedy. And uh, again, with no security, I could run in, get the plane. I would get back to LA around midnight, one in the morning, and be on the set the next morning at six or seven. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's I why they that. didn't put you in there playing our song, is they heard you had to have real coffee on stage. Exactly. All of your performances. No matter what the play. Doesn't matter. No. <laughs> coffee. Got to have coffee. Yes. <laughs> Waiting for Godot. I'm sorry, we need I'm coffee sorry. on the yeah. stage. Yeah. Now, 1985, La Jolla Redux version comes around of, of Sondheim and First Merrily We Roll Along, which I've heard you talk about before, which is just fascinating to me. This revamped production that, that James Lapine uh, worked on. Of course, the original, we all know, had ended very abruptly and, and very crushingly for, for the team that created it. Were they and, and you eager to work on this new version of this sort of disastrous play? Yes. Period. Absolutely. Because the score, as you know, is beautiful. Mm -hmm. The original play by Kaufman and Hart is weird and funny, a la Betrayal by Pinter. You know, it goes backwards in time. And so that's always sort of weird and challenging and fun to both watch as an audience and do as actors. And, the, and it was Sondheim. And it was Lapine. They had just done Sunday in the Park. They had won the Pulitzer Prize. I had blown my audition to take over for Mandy Patinkin in Sunday in the Park because I forgot my lyrics and I had, and they brought Bernadette Peters out on stage at my audition, which they hadn't prepared me for, to <laughs> sing the duet with me. And I was flipping pages and they were falling <laughs> on the floor and, and they said, thank you very much. And I left. But again, two years later, whatever it was, I got a call. I was uh, on vacation in Switzerland with my family. I got a call, you know, Lapine and Sondheim want you to be, again, no audition, play the lead in their new uh, Merrily. I said, yes, from the blown audition. So yeah, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. Maren Maisie played opposite me. She played the young wife. Mm -hmm. uh, Chip Zion would have won 19 Tonys for his Charlie. It was the best Charlie anybody will ever see. I don't care who played it before or after, but Lapine, the Schuberts flew out there to La Jolla, saw it, and they wanted to bring it to Broadway. But Lapine didn't enjoy working as the hired director. He had written and directed Sunday in the Park. He had won the Pulitzer Prize. He was now the author director. And, but George Firth was there working with us because he wrote Merrily. And we all loved George and we all loved James and there was no antipathy, but he didn't enjoy not being able to put his hands on the script and rewrite. Mm. He had to keep going to George and saying, hey, George, what if we, you know, and George was wonderful at that, but he, he, George was George and not James. 
So James said, no. And he wrote Into the Woods instead. Yeah. I was crushed that that didn't go to Broadway. It was, a, it was a great cast. And what they did was they cast us. We were in our sort of early 40s. So we could get away with playing 25-year-olds. And we could get away with playing 55-year-olds. And we changed makeup and wigs and hair and beards and thing all through the evening. It was a hysterical backstage craziness. <laughs> wow. But that was what made the play work as opposed to the first time on Broadway where they cast 20 year olds with no makeup and no costumes with their names written on t-shirts. And they played 50 year olds and 40 year olds and 20 year olds and they were still just them. And for some reason, among other things, that just did not work. Mm -hmm. Lapine's idea worked. He's a brilliant director. And it was a good cast. Heather McRae was Mary. I mean, it was really mm -hmm. It was very strong. I remember seeing that production and thinking, oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah. sure. No, I came down to La Jolla and thought, yes, you have to cast this play older. Just yeah. enough so you're, so uh, the original Broadway production, it, it, what it lacked was credibility until you got to the middle of the second act. Exactly. At which point you thought, oh, this is the right age for these people. Right. Now I'm beginning to get into who these people are and care. Right. And until that, it was like watching... The, the best students of high school putting on a play. Exactly. Yeah. But I did. I enjoyed that very much. Oh, I um, loved it. That was a show that at the end, as you finished the show and you were really exhausted, mostly from changing makeup, <laughs> you wanted to start again. We all said that. We would be walking up, going up an elevator to our dressing room there at La Jolla, saying, I wish we could just go down and walk on and do it again. Well, uh, and, and another uh, production that I did see that I enjoyed very much was the original production of Kiss of the Spider Woman at SUNY Purchase. Why, you re really get around. I do get around, and I, I'm sort of stalking you. As, now that I'm thinking about it, I've seen so many shows you've been in. Um, and of course, for those who don't know, SUNY Purchase, State University of New York at Purchase, they were starting a new musicals program. And I think Hal Prince and his original staging of Kiss of the Spider Woman was the first show and I think the point of it was to to try a show out out of the view of the New York critics and of course the New York critics came anyway from what I've heard Hal Prince was not at all happy that he wasn't able to 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 do the show the way he wanted to out of sight of people who already had opinions before yeah, it was Frank Rich it wasn't the critics it was Frank Rich ah, well the critic that mattered most apparently yes he's just times. He said, you're doing a play, you're charging money. It's in the greater New York area. I'm the New York Times drama critic, I'm there. And <laughs> there were big meetings uh, at, at Hal Prince's office with other people like Stephen Sondheim and other producers and composers and directors who had nothing to do with the show, begged him, please don't go. What we're trying to do is save some money to make the ticket prices not escalate the way they're escalating. And by that, we, we do a full Broadway production, but in town so that everybody can live in their homes in New York. We don't have to pay for hotels. We don't have to go to Boston or Philly. We're right here. It's, everybody takes a cut. The actors take a cut. The orchestra takes a cut, but it's a full Broadway orchestra. Mm. It sets the lights, the costumes full. If it flops, everybody is taking a cut, so we haven't lost our complete shirts. And if it can move, 
we move that production to Broadway without having to build it again, without having to mm -hmm. travel it for 400 miles. That was the purpose. And Frank Rich said, no, end of story. It mm -hmm. collapsed. He killed it. Wow. Thank you, but, Frank Rich. That's but, why I moved back to Los Angeles. But you must have enjoyed creating the role of Molina in that production. It. Yeah. And Kevin Gray opposite me was amazing. Right. Yeah. Lauren Mitchell played the, the spider woman. And somewhere in their, in their hearts, they all, all knew that they were probably going to end up with Cheetah Rivera. Yes. But I thought even at that point with a show that, yes, needed some work was still a very interesting show. Oh, I agree. I agree. I loved it. And I was, of course, very disappointed that I didn't get to continue with it. But mm. that whole production was sort of tossed because Frank Rich had stated that it sucked. Right. Wow. Right. So they had to do it all brand new, all new people. Mm. You played Tate in, in Ragtime. And I bring this up because it was directed by Frank Galati, who was actually one of Mark's professors at Northwestern. Northwestern University, yes. Um, he was a great professor. How was he as a director? The best. I mean, if I had to rank directors, I think I would have to put Mike Nichols on top. And I loved so many directors, but Frank Galati was extraordinary. He was, I mean, you know him if he was your teacher. Mm -hmm. he, he has a light shining inside of him and an energy and an enthusiasm that just is, it's, it's uplifting. It just makes you do the best work you can possibly do. And our first uh, day on Ragtime, he, he gave a college lecture on the history of the immigrants coming over and Ellis Island and the thing and the, the African-American experience of the time, the music, the Ragtime music and blah, blah, blah. He knew everything, not with notes. He just expounded. And we were all in awe as though we had just seen a, an amazing one-man show or something. It was just fantastic. And he, was, he was that way in class as well. We yeah, just, sure. He would walk in and you'd sit there and be inspired. Yeah. And then we'd get up and do our performances and, you know, we would try to take some of his light and, and put it into what we did. And I think he elevated everyone because of that. That's right. And I believe that that production of Ragtime uh, reflected that light. Mm -hmm. it, to me, it, that's the show. Not Phantom of the Opera, not Cats, not you know, whatever else, Lion King, that is the show that should be running in perpetuity in New York, yeah. 20, mm. 30 years, where all the tourists go and see it and all the kids get to see it. But it's just too edgy. And, and you know, by that, I mean there are too many racists. <laughs> well, it's very, I mean, isn't it? In, the in these provocative times, in these yeah. very splintered yeah. times, it speaks to... It speaks right to it the core makes of the you issue. Have to deal. Race and immigrants, and I mean, it's and what a, what an original cast that was too, with you and and Brian Stokes Mitchell, and and of course the great Marin Maisie and and Peter and I think Friedman. was in that production. Well, yes, it, this was the weird Audra. thing. Again, it was a blown audition. I auditioned for Tate, and uh, you know, got called back a number of times, and I so wanted to do it, and they cast Peter Friedman who, you know, Frank knew from Steppenwolf and they, you know, they were old Chicago buddies. That's not the reason he got it. He's a wonderful actor and he was great in it. And he's a friend and I love him, but I hate him for getting that role <laughs> away from me. But the deal that that original, the real original cast, which was Brian, which was Marin, uh, which was Audra McDonald, um, 
was that they had to perform it in Toronto at Garth Trubinsky's place up there for a full year. And only then would they all be guaranteed that they would go and open the Broadway show. So they, of course, all said, yeah, we're in. Um, but after it had played in Toronto for a, just a couple of months, Drabinsky and I guess Frank got this sort of, we, we want to get it going in America. We don't want to wait a full year for Broadway. So they came out here to Los Angeles and they made an entirely new production. The same sets, the same, everything the same. They made it all in Toronto and they flew it out here. Brian Stokes left the Toronto company to open ours and then returned to open on Broadway. Mm. Um, they stole, we had Judy Kay open with us. Um, they had uh, uh, Camille Saviola, but they Emma Goldman, began yes. to open on Broadway. Yeah. They stole our little boy and he opened on Broadway. Wow. But Lachance uh, opened with us. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then we all did it in uh, Vancouver. We did it here for a year and something, and then we did it in Vancouver, and then we, most of us took over on Broadway. I did it for a year on Broadway after Peter Friedman had the mm -hmm. kindness to leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, getting to a, a final question here. Uh, just two years ago, you originated another role, Grandpa Joe. <laughs> Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, of all things. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, ha having been on stage for decades on Broadway and off-Broadway and around everywhere, do you have the sense that audiences have changed since the days of Pippin in the early 70s to, to just two years ago on Broadway? Do you get a different sense from them, a different expectation that they have for when they go to the theater? Well, I do and I don't. I would, I would have to answer that sort of twice. The first answer is no, no difference. When you stand on a stage, as Peter Brook wrote in his amazing book, you can spread a carpet in a public square in some weird little Egyptian village. And if you strut out onto that carpet and give them a play, they will love it, they will laugh, they will cry, they will embrace you, they will follow the story like children. So standing on a stage, whether it's in a little 99 seat theater in LA or in some you know, city in, in, anywhere in the world or on a Broadway stage, the audience is the same. Whatever you give them, they will react to it. If they like it, they'll, they'll applaud, they'll laugh, they'll cry, they'll be silent and listen. Um, and, and if it's not good, they won't. They'll be bored, they'll make noise, they'll cough, they'll leave. No, so no audiences have not changed. That said, the commercial aspect of Broadway has changed very, very, very much. Whereas I, as a teenager, could sit for 750 Fifth Row Center and see mm -hmm. a new Broadway play. That same seat for that same play today would be $300 or $400. Yeah. Right. And if it was a big hit, it could be $800 or $900. <laughs> so the people sitting in the chairs are different strata. You know, the rich people always went to the theater, of course. But so did poor people, and so did middle people and everybody else. Mm -hmm. Now, it's less and less the case. Uh, even sitting in the, that, that, our poor little friend with his ear trumpet in the back row of the balcony, he still is paying $95 or $130 or something. Right. So, you know, the teenagers like me who are enraptured by the theater, they're not in that room. 
Yeah. And, and that is different. And other things, everybody has cell phones. So you stand on a Broadway stage and you see, you know, about 45 illuminated faces from people who are actually looking at their cell phone while you're working. Mm -hmm. um, they're allowed very often to bring drinks to their seats now, which they didn't used right. to. Right. So there's that kind of <laughs> dinner theater feel to it. Are they allowing them to bring in their pets yet? <laughs> they will. That'll That's come next. Yeah. That's soon. Yeah. So you mean so that, and then the fact that a Broadway, especially a musical, but even a play, you there's no room for the little murder mysteries and the and the sexy comedies that there used to be. Mm -hmm. They would run for six months. They'd run for nine months. They would make their money back because the investment wasn't so huge. Right. You know. And they would be okay. And then they're, they're in the literature and they can be done all over the world. Now, if it doesn't get those rave reviews, it's got to close because it's just too expensive to run. And it's, it's a real estate game, you know? And they'll, they kicked Charlie and the Chocolate Factory out the week after we broke the Lunt Fontaine record of sales wow. for the week. And then they kicked us out. We've gotten terrible reviews, I will grant you. But the audiences were coming. The audiences were still coming. coming. Yeah. And we were filling the house. And we were doing well. But they kicked us out of there for some musical about uh, um, uh, a singer, I can't remember, because of real estate, because they got a better offer from them than we had, and then the contract out. <laughs> so that didn't used to be as much the case. It was more about the playwrights and the directors and the actors. And now it's really about the money and the real estate and right. the, you know, remake a movie and put it on Broadway. Right. Because mm -hmm. everybody knows the title and they'll drop their $200 to see it. John Rubenstein, thank you so much for being with us today. The always entertaining. I, I didn't mean to bend your ears so much. No, this was, this was a, a, a lesson for us and really a gift. So thank you so much so appreciated it's well, thank so appreciated. you, you very very impressive. sweet of you to ask me i enjoyed it this has been half hour to curtain a monthly podcast with theater artists of note it is produced by los angeles musical theater studio and the theme song is by anthony luca i'm mark kaufman and i'm dan fishback and you have just finished listening to part two of the interview with john rubenstein tune in next month when we will interview another theater artist of note on half hour to curtain until next month, we'll see you later. For podcast archives and for more info about the show, visit www.halfhourtocurtain.com. For information about the Los Angeles Musical Theater Studio, a training ground for actors, visit lamts.com.